south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 234, covering the week of October 5th through October 9th, 2020. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, like our Facebook page, and subscribe to our YouTube page. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday or Monday or Tuesday through Saturday. We send it out five days a week. You can support the Institute by clicking on that support tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift, and we do exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you like what we do, if you like the podcast, our website, our conferences, our videos, we're doing more of those. We've got a lot of great stuff in store for you. Please consider a tax-deductible donation to the full extent of the law. You can also click on that shop tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. You can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's high-quality embroidered stuff. So if you want to advertise the Institute and get a nice shirt, go on out to abbevilleinstitute.org, click on that support tab. Also click on that Amazon smile button at the top of the page. If you shop at Amazon, you make us your preferred nonprofit organization. Every time you shop, we get a little bit back so you can make Amazon pay us, which is a great thing too. And also download our free mobile app. It is uh, just go to your app store, wherever you get your uh, applications on your mobile devices, look for Abbeville Institute. You can download the app, and of course, that's our mobile access to the podcast, our lectures. We have over 200 audio lectures available for free on the app and also on the website. But I mean, this is a wonderful library of lectures on the Southern tradition. Many of these are not available on YouTube. We put a lot of them on YouTube, but many of them are not available on YouTube. So you want to get them in audio format only. And always, please rate our podcast wherever you get your podcast. Share it around on social media. Do everything you can to help spread the message. We are trying to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And that takes your help as well. So again, if you like what we do, you can contribute financially. You can contribute by simply sharing our material around. And we do enjoy your help in spreading the word. All right. So let's talk about the topics of the week. Uh, this is an interesting week, and we had a couple of pieces on the Supreme Court, and of course that's in the news quite a bit. But all these work together actually very well. Uh, we had one, our book review this week, because let me just start with that because I just want to mention it. Uh, Catherine Savage-Brossman, who is uh, one of our scholars, affiliated scholars, has published a new book of poetry through Green Altar Press. And Bill Wilson, who's again one of our scholars, is nice enough to review the book. It's a great collection of poetry. We have to understand that you know, back in the, in the Renaissance, there was a push to change the curriculum of uh, the liberal arts curriculum, what's called now. And part of that was reading poetry. And we love music. Everyone loves music. Uh, but we have to understand that music is simply poetry put to, to, uh, to, mute, to uh, song. I mean, so it's, or it's a, a way of expressing poetry. It's uh, and so if you love music, if you love, everyone loves Southern rock or country, or this is just poetry. And reading poetry does something good for the soul. And so one of the things we've done quite a bit in our conferences is focus on Southern literature. We've been running the Clyde Wilson series on Southern poetry. 
we haven't had it in a few weeks. We'll get it back. I mean, we're, it's just something that we've, it's, it's a process to do these things. So we'll have more of that in the near future. So read some poetry. And uh, Dr. Brossman does a good job of having uh, new poetry available for your consumption. So go out and get this new book by one of our Abbeville Institute scholars. The title of the book is Chain Tree, Chained Owls, Poems. And again, on Green Altar Books, just published this year. Now that said, this, this gets into Southern culture, and the South is a unique region, of course. And this is why people have talked about uh, the South as a place to be studied and understood. And every university in the United States now has a Southern Studies program, it seems like. You have Southern historians. You don't have any Northern historians, which I think is a travesty, because the Deep North has always been the odd section of the United States. You look at the odd people. Where do the odd people come from? Well, they come from New England or California. In fact, we should probably have a California studies now and look at the odd people that have settled in California. Not the early odd people, not the early people, I should say, that settled in California, but the recent odd people from the 1960s forward. I think that it's created its own culture. Uh, now, there are you know, good people in California, and for a long time, Southern California was founded by Southerners, in fact. And... Uh, Last week, we had an article on California secession. At least in 1858, there was an attempt to break Southern California off and create a new state or a new territory that failed because the war came about, right? So uh, there's always been this unique culture in Southern California. Uh, it was influenced quite a bit by the South, and uh, that's gone away. But one thing we're seeing, and this is where uh, Ron Kennedy talks about uh, a stateless people, a stateless people. The South, the Southern people don't have a home. I mean, they have their states, but they're under control of people that are not necessarily in favor of the South and aren't necessarily sympathetic to the Southern tradition. You look at Mississippi, as Ron Kennedy brings up, and the Republican-controlled legislature there decided to end the Mississippi flag. Now, you could say this reflects the will of the people, but does it? I mean, would the people of Mississippi be in line with that? And maybe they would. Maybe if you took a poll and they were to put this to referendum, maybe the people of Mississippi would decide that that flag is no longer something they want. Maybe. We do know that Southerners in large majorities favor Southern symbols. They don't want them taken down or destroyed. You can find pockets in different parts of the South where you have people that do, and mostly it's because they're being pressured by outside organizations. They're being pressured to do things that they don't they necessarily wouldn't do. And a lot of that has to do with the Republican Party. Republicans seem to believe that they have all of the treasury of virtue because of Abraham Lincoln and others. And so that's the lineage of the Republican Party. Well, if that's the case, and that's the, the enemy of the South. I mean, Lincoln was certainly the enemy of the South. I mean, he was. Now, he would say he wasn't, but I mean, he waged a war for four years against the South, against self-determination, as H.L. Mencken pointed out in the 1920s and 30s. This is a war against self-determination, not a war for it. So if this is the case, I mean, if, if, if the Republican Party is now ingrained in the South, and it is, then the South doesn't really have a political organization any longer that represents the South and Southern culture and Southern history. And so where do you go from there? 
Well, this is one thing we've talked about quite a bit at the Institute. Decentralization is something that I think we need to be looking at. Uh, and maybe it's not the South that needs to go. Maybe it's California and New England. But a lot of the pressure being put on Southern symbols is coming internally. And I think if you look at Virginia, for example, you have the Virginia governor, the Virginia legislature. Many of these people, though, are not necessarily from Virginia. They've moved there. Now, Ralph Northam is from Virginia. He is a native Virginian. And so you do have pressure coming internally on these things. And this leads us to the piece on Monday, which I think is just beautiful. I want to read this entire piece because it's really good. It's by a man named Patrick C. And it's a nice discussion of what's happening on Monument Avenue in Richmond. Monument Avenue, 1890 to 2020, by Patrick C. For the majority of my life, I've had an intense interest in the history of the war between the states. This interest germinated as a result of two very influential places that I became well acquainted with from a young age. The first of these was the land that I have lived on since before my memory was even able to take root, a parcel that was witness to some of the most sanguinary fighting that occurred throughout the course of the whole war, the Battle of Gaines Mills on June 27, 1862, and the Battle of Cold Harbor during the first two weeks of June 1864, and which still bears visible scars from both conflicts. The other one was Mon Monument Avenue. As a child, I was often afforded the opportunity to take long walks down the grassy median to view the massive statues of Stuart, Lee, Davis, Jackson, and Murray. Each figure stood larger than life, sentinels of the city for which each sacrificed so much for over the co course of their illustrious lives. As a child, Richmond was, in my mind, the place where the monuments were. All else was secondary. Before I knew anything about the men to whom these monuments paid tribute, I knew that they, they must have accomplished something great in the course of their lives for them to be memorialized in the permanence of granite and bronze and to be conspicuously placed on one of the world's most beautiful avenues. This belief in the curiosity which it fostered resulted in a continuous study of those men and the war that made their names immortal. I soon learned of Stuart riding around McClellan's army in that fascinating and promising spring of 1862, of Jackson winning fame in the Shenandoah Valley and turning Hooker's flank at Chancellorsville, of Davis working incessantly day and night to sustain the dream of independent South, and of Maury's advancement of the science of oceanography. And then, of course, there was Lee, the Virginia gentleman, commander of the army that my ancestors fought with, and who, against odds that were often unbelievably long, outfoxed foe after foe with his uncanny ability to read his opponent's mind. I was indeed fortunate to mature in an environment where books were present, along with the encouragement to read them. The earliest printed material that I can remember ever grabbing my attention on the, any subject was a little book entitled Monument and Boulevard, Richmond's Grand Avenues, which my father gave to me as a Christmas present when I was eight years old. It showcased each of the monuments that I had already come to love, and it did a wonderful job in explaining their history along with the many reasons why Richmonders revered them. It was from this booklet, along with an inherited copy of Tom and Nels Thomas Nelson Page's Robert E. Lee, the Southerner, that developed a love for reading and a proper respect for the generations of the past. It would have been impossible in those halicon days to have read the slightest premonition that the vicissitudes and fierce polemics of the next 12 years would fan the flames of ignorance and neighborly suspicion 
to the point of an unquenchable blaze which would eventually result in the destruction of the avenue I adored. The, de the degeneration of the public and pseudo-intellectual discussions surrounding the memory of Southern heroes in the past decade has been unprecedented in its rapidity and malignancy. I have tried to the best of my ability to defend the honorable names of the men mentioned above against incessant attacks, but I've had to face time and time again the stark reality of the apathy of the modern mind, along with the futility of trying to convince ignorant minds of truths that I have learned through my own study, which were often not in accordance with the narrative that they have been conditioned over the years to accept. And so here we are, 130 years after the unveiling of the Lee Monument, left with street and Richmond that is only a shadow of its former self, gaining nothing. It ought to be renamed Amnesia Avenue, as we are now left with a capital city whose identity, if it can be said to have one at all, lies solely in an unkept streets that hurry a deracinated populace from chain stores to office building to bars that provide an illusionary alleviation to the everydayness of their miserable urban lives. In the not-too-distant past, Richmond was a place where the past was remembered with reverence, and the future was faced all the more boldly because of it. Today in our commonwealth, which is currently under the management of ignominious and barbaric politicians, there now remain fewer reminders of men who, by the, by the examples they set, provided a standard that most of our day are incapable of meeting. The removal of Richmond's monuments only provides the doltish agitators screeching against men by, of whom they know nothing, a temporary slight to their thirst for cultural conquest. And observing the despotic conduct of the governor of Virginia and the mayor of Richmond up to this point, their terms, I have been consistently reminded of the philosophic wisdom of General Lee, who once wrote, the forbearing use of power does not only form a touchstone, but the manner in which an individual enjoys certain advantages over others is a test of a true gentleman. Is it any wonder that government officials have been so pathological in their attempt to remove the image of Lee from the public conscience? What we are experiencing in our time is another manifestation of the spiritual warfare that has been raging since the fall of mankind. While I am unremitting in my opposition to the removal of any monuments of the soldiers and statesmen of the South, I am at the same time cognizant of the fact that the memory of godly men will never be in vogue within the city limits of New Gomorrah, and that such a trashy city is unworthy to have such beautiful monuments. To me, Richmond is now the place where the monuments used to be and I will lose nothing by staying as far away from it as possible. The demonstrators can have their vanity fair in its streets. At least they will not be plagued by the reminders of men who are greater than themselves. A century from now, when the names of these respectable, responsible for the destruction of, of old Richmond are either forgotten entirely or indignantly remembered, those of Lee, Jackson, Stewart, Davis, and Maury will remain esteemed in the minds of those who have taken the time to learn from their lives that they lived and the examples that they set. The coffins of Stuart and Jackson were both draped in the stainless banner, and that banner remains stainless still. It's a wonderful piece. And I think uh, just a nice, nice summary of what's happening in America today. And part of this is because, again, as Ron Kennedy points out, we have no we have no place anymore. Southerners don't have a place. They are a stateless people. And they're being gaslighted, as he says, by the Republican Party. Now, part of this is also because of the courts. 
You see, in Virginia, there was a monument protection law. In Alabama, there was a monument protection law. In South Carolina, there's monument protection laws. There are monument protection laws, but established by legislatures across the South to protect all monuments. But, of course, the only monuments really under attack now are Confederate monuments. Some others, you look at Washington, Jefferson, and even in some cases, people were attacking the 54th Massachusetts Monument. I mean, these people are just stupid, and they're, if this is all about you know, race, well, why would you attack that monument? But of course, it's not about that. It's about Western civilization. But I wrote a while back a cautionary tale about monument protection laws, and I said it because these things are only as good as the people willing to enforce them, and the uh, the penalties, the penalties, are so light for most that they're not going to do anything. Now, in Richmond, in Virginia, these laws were overturned by the legislature. And I said as soon as the Democrats gained control of Virginia legislature, this is going to be the first thing they did. By and large, I was correct. The first thing they did was revoke that law. Why? Because, of course, Confederate monuments are the reason that all these things happened in the United States. We didn't have Confederate monuments. Well, everything would be a happy land of sunshine, butterflies, flowers, and rainbows. Because these things would prevent people from going about their lives and living uh, peacefully every day. That monument in the town square, it's all about that. But as I predicted, this is one of the first things that happened. They rescinded the law. In Alabama the other day, we had a, the city council vote to take down a Mont Confederate monument in Anniston, Alabama. And... Of course, this violates the Monument Protection Act in Alabama, so the state fined the city $25,000. Well, they had some rich liberal donor simply give the $25,000. So where is the teeth? Now, I know in Georgia, from what I understand, and others are looking maybe to emulate this, those that violate the law, the city councilman can be personally sued for doing it. And I think this is something that needs to happen. If you vote to take this thing down, well, then you can be sued personally for doing it. So now you're going to feel the pinch financially, individually, for doing something against the law. And I think this is something that needs to happen. These city councilmen that vote to take down a monument should be faced with litigation. And so uh, this is something that uh, you know it, is possible. Uh, these monuments have value to society outside of simply some people saying it's a lost cause, but these are men, these are, these are symbols of men who are from these communities that died in favor of self-determination, in the American spirit of self-determination. They should be respected and remembered. Whether you agreed with the government under which they fought or not, these were all heroes, both sides. And that's how they were always remembered for a long period of time. It's just now they're, they're just seen as enemies, devils. So uh, we've got that situation. We've got the courts now as a main antagonist in this issue. And these are the last two pieces of the week I think fit very nicely. One by Paul Yarbrough and the one by Ryan Walters. Paul Yarbrough's piece I think makes the case succinctly that it, it really doesn't matter 
who's on the bench of the Supreme Court. We're going to have a lot of wrangling and hand tw- and you know hand wringing and other things over this. We're going to have people very upset about uh, Trump's nominee for the court and whether she's going to be confirmed or not. Uh, but Yarrow points out it really doesn't matter because at the end of the day, what you have is nine people, nine politically connected attorneys determining the fate of 320-plus million people. Is that real government? And you hear that uh, on the left they're saying, this is a threat to democracy. The court is always a threat to democracy. There's no democracy in the court. If we put Amy Coney Barrett, Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court, that's going to destroy democracy. What democracy? You're saying that the court is democratic? The court has never been democratic. The court has always been the tool to enforce the will of some faction that has control over it, whether it's one side or the other. Because what the American Congress in Washington has decided to do is not really debate the constitutionality of issues anymore. They simply punt it to the court or to the executive branch, and they allow both of those entities to to control the government. We don't have legislative government anymore. We have executive or judicial government. As Raul Berger called it, government by judiciary. I think it's either government by executive or government by judiciary, one or the other. We don't really have a legislative branch. And we certainly don't have the states as the fourth leg of the system. And this is something the Abbeville Institute was founded on to talk about this process of decentralization and and correct federalism. These are ideas that Southerners pursued longer than others. It doesn't mean that Southerners didn't always believe in themselves. But the idea of it was, was certainly there. So you have a situation where the Supreme Court has become the dominant player in the general government. There's a reason why people are very upset about this, because they know these, and it's not just nine judges. It could be five judges, five people, determining the fate of 320 million people. Is that good government? We didn't have, if, if I should say this, if the, Founding generation, the opponents of the document, or even those on the fence had seen this coming. Those on the fence, most importantly, had seen this coming. They would not have ratified the Constitution. It would not have happened. Because I think they were concerned, they were certainly concerned, that we would have a centralized authority. The president was one thing they focused on as being dangerous. The Supreme Court could have been dangerous. The destruction of state powers was dangerous. There's a reason why in the Confederate Constitution, the Supreme Court is established, but it was never, or at least listed, but it was never put into effect. A federal court system was never created by the Confederate Congress. Why? Because they had the states to do it. And that worked fine during the war. You see, uh, This is the way that the Virginia, the Richmond Junto, said things should be. It's just that John Marshall, who was also a Southerner, by the way, I mean, thought otherwise. And then, of course, others followed suit. So we have a system that is destined to create centralization. And I think Ryan Walters on Friday did a wonderful job showing the history of court packing and the nature of the federal courts as being destructive to liberties in America. And he points out, and I think this is something that people need to understand, we're going to hear a lot about court packing. If the Democrats win in the 2020 election, there is a real push to add justices to the court. And Ryan Walters points out this is nothing new. In fact, the Republicans did it 
in the 1860s. They created a tenth seat so that the Lincoln administration could get its way during the war. And when Chief Justice Tawney died, Lincoln refused to put anyone on the bench right away because he wanted to get the, uh, the sentiment of the public as to who should be the proper judge. It wasn't about, he didn't think he was going to lose and let McClellan do it. No, it was about which Republican he could get on there. And, of course, he finally settled on Salmon P. Chase. Uh, but that said, when Andrew Johnson became president, what did the Republicans do? Well, they reduced the court to eight members. They didn't pack it, they reduced it. Why? Because they didn't want Johnson to make an appointment. And so by doing that, they blocked a member of the other faction from appointing someone to the court so that it would change the nature of the court. And then when Grant became president, they bumped it back up to nine so that Grant could make an appointment. <laughs> and you have the modern Supreme Court. Now, it, there was certainly attempts to pack the court, and I think one thing Ryan Walters points out is that John Marshall himself was a result of packing the court, so to speak. Because you see... When Jefferson won the election in 1800 and the Republicans were going to take power in 1801, both in the executive branch and in the Congress, the Federalists ran through a series of what's of judges called the Midnight Judges. They ran through legislation that created a number of federal court positions and John Adams filled them all. John Adams filled them all. So we have uh, one of the earliest examples of John Adams and the Federalists packing the court. This led to Marbury v. Madison, of course, in 1803, because John Marshall was Secretary of State when this all started happening, and later became Chief Justice, and of course he didn't fill all the positions. So Jefferson refused to fill the minor court position of William Marbury, and that led to the Marbury v. Madison decision of 1803. But the, the court itself uh, has, has always been political. It's never been not political. And I mean, even going back to the court under Washington, and uh, you had uh, the political nature of the court there. We had the first time that the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of a law in a case where Alexander Hamilton actually appeared before the court and defended his tax, his carriage tax, and the court found it constitutional. So this is the interesting part about all of this. The court has always been problematic, and I think Ryan Walters has a very nice conclusion of this piece. He said, look, if the Democrats win, they're probably going to pack the court, and they're going to want their people on it. We know Franklin Roosevelt tried to do this in 1937. The Congress rebuffed his attempt. But I think that the only way this would not happen is that the Senate can somehow stay in the hands of the Republicans, and they would block such legislation. But uh, the fact is, uh, if the Democrats pack the court, there are certainly precedents for this. And Walter's caution was that if the Republicans should ever gain power back, not to pack the court, not to add more judges, but to reduce the power of the court. And he brings up a very interesting case in the Reconstruction period where the Congress removed powers from the court. So you just take away their appellate jurisdiction in certain ways. 
and therefore they have no power. See, the Congress can emasculate the court. The Congress could get rid of all of the circuit courts. They could get rid of all of that. The only court that's in the Constitution is the Supreme Court. They could, they could completely defund and abolish all other federal courts. They could just get rid of every single one of them if they wanted to. This is something that actually should be openly discussed. You want to rein in the power of the federal government and this government by judiciary? Get rid of all these lower courts. And this was something that Southerners actually talked about. Uh, they talked about getting rid of certain parts of the Judiciary Act or, re or reforming the court so that it wasn't so oppressive. It's something that people don't talk about anymore. Though Newt Gingrich did bring it up uh, a few, couple of years ago. He said, you know, look, why don't we just get rid of the Ninth Circuit? You just abolish it. Congress could just get rid of it. You see, but none of these ideas will ever go because the establishment won't let it happen. We've got an establishment now that wants to maintain what it is, and it doesn't want to get rid of any of this stuff. So this will always be the problem of the federal court system because you will always have the establishment blocking any of these ideas. So where do you go from there? Well, you have to go to decentralization. You've got to look at the states. You've got to look at the, at the southern tradition of decentralization and how the states could have a more dominant role in this, and you'd basically just do it. You don't ask the central authority. You just do it. Unfortunately, as again Ron Kennedy pointed out, the states are even buckling under the influence of outsiders, people from outside the South. There isn't really a Southern party anymore. Uh, you know, you've got Richmond being destroyed. So where do we go? Well, you have to start trying to work within your own communities, or at least in some cases when it comes to Richmond, Richmond's a lost cause. It is a lost cause. There's nothing going to happen there. So we have to start looking at other ways to try to fight back uh, and do it in a way, maybe through the state legislatures, that could be effective in blocking some of the madness that's happening in America right now. We'll see. I don't know where we go from here, but certainly we're facing an uphill battle. So I hope you enjoyed uh, that piece by Patrick C. It's wonderful and, and uh, our discussion of the courts. Until next time. Good day.